from Integral Life. Welcome to Everyone is Right. And what started to happen with the second two stages is that there was really strong, intuitive understanding that all of those previous stages were important. They all had real significance, if for no other reason that they were actually stages on the way to your own viewpoint. They're actually sort of like rungs in a ladder, although they're not that discreet. But if you pull those out and pull the ladder out from under you, suicide. Hey everyone, Corey DeVos here, the managing editor here at Integral Life. As many of you know, Ken Wilbur and I have a monthly show together called The Ken Show that's hosted over at IntegralLife.com and is available to all of our supporting members. Every now and again, we like to post excerpts from those discussions here on the Everyone is Right podcast. In our most recent episode, titled Growing Up, A Guided Tour, Ken and I offer an in-depth exploration of the major stages of development using about a dozen or so film clips to help scaffold the conversation and illustrate some of the general qualities of each of these stages, including clips from well-known films like The NeverEnding Story, Mad Max Fury Road, Casablanca, Network, Jurassic Park, The Matrix, and many others. You can find all of this, as well as some general practice tips to help your own journey through the growing up process in the full three and a half hour episode over at IntegralLife.com. It's a really fun ride, and I definitely encourage you all to check it out. In the meantime, here is Ken Wilber's one-hour introduction to the episode, titled A Brief History of Human Development. We hope you enjoy, and that you'll check out the full episode on Integral Life. And today, you know, I figured what we do, Ken, is we've been spending so much time talking about politics and current events and these sort of different cultural and social trends I thought we would, you know, take take a moment to sort of step back and basically have a conversation about some of the core components of integral theory itself, which I think is really, you know, has so much uh, explanatory power in terms of, um, you know, basically figuring out where North is when we're trying to relate to all these very challenging and complex issues and topics. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to talk about something that is absolutely central to integral meta theory. And that is our growth through these multiple stages of developmental maturity, or what we often call altitude. Now, in a certain way, you know, I think these stages of development are actually a little bit difficult to talk about because out of all the major elements of integral theory, quadrants, states, and even types, all of those can be experienced right now in our first person experience. We can, we can point to them phenomenologically and get a sense of what they are. But stages are a little bit different. They're, they're not something we can experience in our mind because they're basically the shape of our mind. They're not something we can see right now because they aren't what we see, they're more like how we see. And it's interesting because while you know altitude is, is definitely more difficult to evoke in our own first person experience, it's probably the element of integral theory that lights people up the most when they first learn it. Um, and makes the most immediate sort of sense to them. And interestingly, it's also the one that really has the most rigorous sort of scientific and clinical research backing it up, um, at least, you know, in terms of conventional academia. Well, you know, and I, I think that despite this, the, all this sort of rigorous um, research that's behind it, it's still one of the, you know, one of the elements of integral 
that the world really, really needs the most and the world is most lacking. And so, you know, I think today we're gonna, we're gonna um, have a lot of fun sort of unpacking this for a lot of people. Um, but either way, you know, Ken, I think that your framework of altitude is, in developmental psychology in general as a whole is, you know, certainly one of the most precious gifts that I think Integral has to offer the rest of the world. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. And basically, here's what we're gonna do. Um, Ken, first I was thinking you would give us just sort of a general lay of the land. You can talk about what human development is, how it was discovered and why it's important. And then what we'll do is we're actually gonna take a sort of step-by-step -step tour through some of these different stages of development. And because, you know, as I said, these stages are so difficult to point to in our immediate experience, what I've done uh, is actually compile a series of short film clips from some really, really popular films that most of us are gonna recognize. And each of these, I think, demonstrates some aspect, some critical factor of that stage, either the view from that stage or the values associated with that stage or the general sort of leadership styles that tend to come from those stages. And hopefully these clips are gonna, you know, help illustrate the, the, the general contours of these stages using these really well-known cultural reference points that we're, again, we're all sort of familiar with. And, you know, I'm hoping that this is gonna help us see how development has been represented in film over the last several decades, which I think is sort of an interesting topic in and of itself. Um, so it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this. And before we get, I think, to the, to the sort of meat of the questions here, I was, I was thinking it would be a good idea, Ken, first to, to try to define our terms a bit. You know, I see people often using the terms altitudes, levels, stages, and structures sort of interchangeably, as I'm sure I did earlier when I was sort of setting this up. And, but as, you know, you've often, mess, uh, as you've often told us, altitude is actually just sort of one cross-disciplinary way that we can use to, to, to measure our growth along, you know, a whole bunch of different uh, vertices, lines of development. And, you know, I, I also know that we can talk, you know, in terms of things like state stages, structure stages. So clearly the word stages is being used in fairly different ways there. Um, and we've even, you know, oftentimes use these words a little bit interchangeably when we're describing the integral approach itself, you know, things like all quadrants, all levels, or states and stages, things like that. So how much, Ken, do you think this, this, this matters in terms of getting our, our, our definitions straight here? Yeah, well, one of the things that happened as, um, as the whole integral approach continued to develop is from the very beginning, um, there was the recognition that consciousness itself um, wasn't just a single thing and that everybody just had that thing and then that thing did a whole group of similar things in, in everybody. Um, and it also wasn't even the case that if you looked at various types of psychotherapy, for example, um, what they would consider um, to be consciousness uh, also varied considerably from school to school. It was pretty, pretty clear that there were different things going on here. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first book I did was called The Spectrum of Consciousness. And the idea was that there were a whole series of bands or levels or waves of consciousness and that all of them were correct. If you were at one of those level stages waves, um, then 
people that were sort of researching that, reporting on what that was like and stuff, that was a very real reality. It was very real. And if you were at that level, stage, structure, then you would essentially see uh, similar things. But people that were coming from profoundly different colors, different bands, different levels, um, would see different things, would have different motivations, different types of problems would arise, and different sorts of therapy would emerge. So uh, there was the notion that we did, really did have these sorts of dimensions of consciousness or levels of consciousness. And from the beginning, that was um, one of the ways that we attempted to integrate the most number of human approaches, human disciplines, um, as possible. Uh, again, the sort of the guiding theory from the beginning is that um, everybody's right, meaning there isn't just one approach that's true and then all the other approaches are wrong, but everybody has some sort of true but partial uh, thing to offer. And the question wasn't which one is right, which one is wrong. The fundamental question was how they all actually fit together. Mm. They're all there, they're all arising. And I can say the human brain is not capable of producing 100% error because nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. So, so what we do have is a bunch of partial truths and a bunch of things that, that aren't quite right. And it turns out that the partial truths tend to be true when they're addressing their own level or dimension of existence, being, consciousness. And then they tend to get partial or even wrong when they try to make statements about other dimensions, other levels, other realities. They're not really directly aware of themselves. So from the beginning, we were sort of looking for ways to bring things together in, in a truly integrated, um, comprehensive framework. And that was one of the crucial ingredients that, um, that we came up with for, for, from the very start. Now, as it turns out, um, We've continued to expand those things and eventually add stuff like quadrants and lines and states and types. Um, one of the things that turned out to be particularly important was that there were indeed these different levels, different dimensions, different colors in a full spectrum rainbow. Um, but there also, it turned out to be that there were two very different ways, in a sense, that human beings on growth, development, being, awareness, we tend to move through that great morphogenetic field. And one of them that human beings were aware of going back several thousand years had to do with direct, immediate, first-person experiences. And this, these end up including quite a spectrum of possibilities. Um, but they were all things that were fully conscious. You were fully aware of them when you had one of these experiences. And so if you look at a lot of the great um, spiritual meditation or contemplative systems, East and West, you'll see that they left, most of them left a kind of map of states of consciousness that a human being can have as they go from sort of the most limited, narrow, fragmented state of consciousness and identity to the most expansive, all-inclusive, often called ultimate unity consciousness, radical, non-dual, all-encompassing awareness. And if you were a human being, 
1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And you were unhappy. You wanted to improve yourself. You wanted to see something that was more real, more fundamental. Then you would undertake a path of meditative, spiritual growth and, and development. And we were, uh, had, had some fairly good maps of, of that path in general. Um, again, going back uh, several thousand years. And if you, if you want to take something like even shamanic states, then these things are going back 20, 30, 40,000 years. It's truly some of the earliest things that human beings ever really discovered um, about their own potentials and their own possibilities. Um, and so that was just part of a kind of awareness that uh, I brought to the picture when I was attempting to, to find ways to put all of the different um, disciplines and, and approaches together in a more comprehensive framework. Um, is that we really did have these states of um, this whole process that I just generally started, just referred to in general as waking up mm -hmm. uh, because the ultimate end of that process was an experience of enlightenment or awakening or divine oneness, ultimate unity, consciousness, and so on. And again, most of the great um, spiritual meditation contemplation systems, East and West, left us maps of those states that, that we could go through. And most of them had practices that you could do to get in to those different states. Um, and so uh, a common one that you find in both Vedanta Hinduism and Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism and some of the Neoplatonic schools, it's just sort of five major states of consciousness. And um, we generically call those gross, subtle, causal. And then the fourth one, and this is actually in the Sanskrit version uh, of this model, uh, the fourth state is actually the, it's just called the, the literal Sanskrit word that means the fourth. Hmm. And that's Turiya. And so that's uh, another state of just pure awareness, not identified with any object or things, to pure, vast, open uh, consciousness without an object. And then the fifth state, um, which the same tradition calls Turiya beyond Turiya, and that is beyond just this pure awareness that's separate from everything that's manifesting to a sense where that awareness becomes one with everything that's manifest. So the witness and everything witnessed becomes non-dual or one. And that was generally held to be a state of an ultimate unity consciousness. You couldn't find a bigger state than that. That really was a oneness of every single thing you can possibly see, feel, imagine, think. Um, and so that, that was, that was a, a crucial point. Now, it turns out that because that is, um, those states are oriented towards primarily just sort of these large ontological sort of chunks of reality. Um, there's also, and an ultimately ending up in an infinite, uh, ultimate ground of all being. Um, there also turns out to be ways that uh, an individual conventional self actually grows and develops through those finite conventional realms. And even though that's the area that's ultimately transcendent, that pure transcendental state, that pure 
oneness with everything state doesn't actually tell you very much at all about anything in the manifest existing finite world. So the first people I had of Satori, and they're out, you know, they're looking, they're aware of the sun, they're aware of the earth, they're practicing uh, Theravada Buddhism or something like that. Uh, and they have this big Satori, and all of a sudden they realize, wait, I'm actually one with everything. I'm one with the sun, I'm one with the earth. I am all of this in this incredible ground of being. I'm not, I don't see the sun, I am the sun. I don't feel the earth, I am the earth. And this has happened to me three, four thousand years ago. And by the way, I'm one with that sun, but I still think the sun goes around the earth. <laughs> and I'm one with the earth, and I'm still quite certain the earth is flat. And Satori doesn't change any of that. It doesn't tell me about atoms or molecules or cells or immune systems or brain physiology, none of it. And it was increasingly maintaining, because this one is really was one with everything, that that which is the world of form and in the, the world of infinite emptiness, those are actually not two. Th those are one. Mm -hmm. And so as the heart sutra put it, that which is emptiness is not other than form, that which is form is not other than emptiness. That meant that which is nirvana is not other than samsara, that which is samsara is not other than nirvana. This was a big shift. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that there were shadows in the cave and the light outside the cave. It was that the shadows and the light were inherently one. That was a big, big shift. But what that also meant is to the extent that we really do want a comprehensive understanding of our world, our place in it, and so on, then we do have to learn about form. Now, of course, it's still your experience of ultimate non-dual unity. Uh, it's still going to just be the case no matter what is happening in the world of form or what you're aware of, because this infinite formless ground is prior to anything that manifests. It was prior to the Big Bang. It's the original face you had before your parents were born. And it doesn't mean it existed at a chronological time that was before the time that your parents were. It means it doesn't answer the stream of time. It's a, it's a timeless, ever-present ground or condition. So one of the things it just turned out to really, really be significant in is as we continue to investigate uh, human beings' own awareness and, and their own consciousness and start to actually track um, how that unfolds. It turns out that in addition to things that we can call states of consciousness, which are, again, first-person, direct, immediate experiences that you're fully aware of when you have it. If you feel that you're one with the entire universe in love and bliss, you know it then there turns out to be another way that human beings are developing, that we can't see these by looking within. Right. And we could also say, when we're talking about those states of consciousness, we could say that in certain ways, there are levels of those, because there are those five states are increasingly more inclusive. You could say there are stages of those. There are, most meditation systems have you move through these in a stage-like fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and you could also say there are waves, like stages. And you could use all of those. 
But one of the things that they weren't, and the, and the term that technically um, applies to what we're talking about now, were structures of consciousness. And structures are very much like grammar. Um, if you grow up in a particular culture, you'll end up speaking that culture's uh, language fairly correctly. Mm -hmm. You can verb together correctly. You will use adjectives and adverbs correctly. Uh, in other words, you're following the rules of grammar of that language quite, quite correctly, quite closely. But if you ask anybody, okay, you're following all these rules of grammar, write down what some of those rules of grammar are. Almost nobody can do it. Right. Most people don't. It doesn't even dawn on them that they're editing, splicing, and, and uh, parsing their reality based on a bunch of grammar rules about how they divide the world up and then put it together. They have no idea they're doing that. Well, so it turns out that human beings, it was very clear, for example, that human beings had unfolding chronological stages or ages. Um, and it went from very immature chronologically to then sort of more mature and then hopefully in, in old age, even very mature or some sort of wisdom. Um, but what wasn't clear is that is it, it is, it is this broad developmental unfolding. Not only can you have a state of consciousness experience, there's actually grammar at each of the major stages that a human being goes through. And these grammars at each of these different interior stages, um, and again, we're talking about structure stages, um, but those grammars, well, they are, the structures of those stages are indeed like grammar. And like grammar, you can't see them by introspective. And that turns out to be staggeringly important because these aren't, in other words, a first person direct immediate experience. They're much more third person interpretive grids that are pre-conscious. And we can't see those because we're using those as something with which to see the world. We can't look at them, we're looking through them. Right. And so one of the sort of defining rules that developmentalists come up with is that the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the next stage. Now, what that means is while you're at a particular structure stage, you're identified with it, that your subject is that structure. So of course you can't see it. I mean, by definition, it, that's what you're seeing with. And that's how these developmental structure stages work. And we'll be getting into them uh, in, in a little bit more detail, but just so I'll have something to talk about right now. Uh, and again, there are dozens and dozens of different names you can legitimately use for each of these uh, structures. And again, these structures can also be referred to with the terms stages, levels, and waves. So that the only real major differences are actually talking about are structures and states. Mm. And then these other terms can sort of be used for both. And one of the reasons in particular that um, there were there was sort of a, a middle series of books where I would just, as I was learning to tell the difference between these two, 
um, I would just refer to structures as stages and then states as states. It was often stages and states and the difference between those. And that's still fine as long as we understand what, what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, but just so, so we can talk about them, I'll tweak uh, some of Gene Gepser's names for these structure stages as he uh, discovered them uh, himself. And they are archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic or pluralistic relativistic, and then integral. Um, and so those are structures. They're grammars when we're at one of those structure stages, then that's how we look at the world. And we interpret the world through that grammar structure at that stage. And when we're at that stage, that structure stage, and we're doing all of that interpreting, we have absolutely no idea whatsoever that we're doing that. And we can't tell by looking within because you can't see them. Like you can't see grammar right now. You and I are following rules of English grammar, fairly accurate, mm -hmm. but we can't look within and see those. Interaction right. will tell us what those are at all. Let me just say you follow those rules much more accurately than I do. <laughs> yes, well, so that actually, that was such a serious problem that those major structure stages literally weren't discovered until around 100 years ago. And, um, and that's just shocking because what it turns out that those structures determine how you will interpret any experience you have. And that includes any waking up experience you have. So even if you're in a state of, let's say, pure formless absorption, and it's just pure consciousness without an object, like you're in deep dreamless sleep, only you're aware. And so there's just absolutely nothing arising. There's no pain, no suffering, no desire, nothing. That's a very real state. Uh, you can get into that state. Um, I always mention um, really shocking examples um, were monks during the Vietnam War. When they would get, protesting the war, they would get into that state of unmanifest absorption where nothing is arising, no pain, nothing. Had their bodies stashed in gasoline and on live TV, they were set on fire, burned to the ground in ashes. Not one of them even flinched at right. all. I mean, that's a real nirvana state. That's a state where there's no pain, no suffering, no ego, no desire, nothing. When, as soon as you come out of that state at all, you'll start thinking about it. You'll might want to try to explain it to somebody. You might want to explain it to yourself. Like, what the hell state was that? As soon as you're doing that, you're interpreting your experience. And that means you're coming from whatever tools the mind has they can interpret with. And that means one of these structure stages of development. You're going to be using one of those to interpret your waking up experience. So if you had, if you were, for example, a Christian fundamentalist, and you were actually at a mythic, James Fell, I should call it mythic, literal, structure stage of development. And so everything in the Bible is literally true. Every word in the Bible is, is absolutely unalterably true. When it says Moses parted the Red Sea, 
It means this guy named Moses stood on the side of the thing called the Red Sea and waved his arms, and the Red Sea actually literally parted. Um, and you can be at that structure stage of, of development, and you can have a very profound peak experience of ultimate unity and oneness. Happens relatively often. And particularly some sects of Christianity really, really emphasize those kind of reborn experiences. That experience can be a very authentic state of oneness. But as you start to interpret it, you will think, among other things, that anybody can have that kind of experience, but only if they accept Jesus Christ as their one and only personal Savior. So they're interpreting that waking up experience according to the stage of growing up, which is what we call that sequence. And so that's what makes that so important. And it becomes particularly telling because those stages of growing up were only discovered about 100 years ago. That's way too recent to be included in any major great religion or any major spiritual meditation system anywhere in the world. And in fact, not a single spiritual system anywhere has any understanding of those stages of growing up. It's really odd. And at the same time, when Western developmental psychologists were first exploring and pioneering these stages of growing up, it was very rare that when they were out looking in a typical population and, and sampling it, trying to determine what stages people were at, it was very, very rare that they would ever have somebody who'd actually had an enlightenment or waking up experience that was actually working on that. It's sort of the everyday kind of practice. Um, in order to have those kinds of waking up experiences in, in a profound and, and authentic and ongoing way, you usually have to do some sort of voluntary practice. It's not just going to happen to you in any sort of permanent way, unless you're doing some sort of practice to help bring that about, some sort of actual waking up um, practice. And so in the populations of those that Western developmental psychologists were um, studying and researching to determine what these levels were, there were there almost, almost none of the major models, and there are about two dozen of them, none of them really have any clear understanding about enlightenment or awakening or waking up or anything like, no real understanding of waking up. Mm -hmm. We just have these structures of growing up, up until we, about what we call second tier. And very few of them even had what we call third tier, which are very, very rare, less than 1% of the population. But they're our future. They're where our future growth and development is headed. But so you have these two major populations of humans, East and West. If you say, what can a human being do to grow and evolve and get better and better? One of them says, you have to do this waking up process. And they have no understanding of growing up at all. And the other group says, oh, well, you go through these growing up stages, and, and that's what you have to go through. They have no conception of waking up at all. So there's not a single system anywhere in the world, prior until just recently, that actually combined both of those. And that means that literally for our entire history, human beings have, have been practicing being broken. Yeah. It's shocking, really. 
So that is one of the major things that, that, uh, that we try to bring to the picture of a truly integral approach. And that is you need both waking up and you need growing up. And some other things, but those are really central. And the growing up uh, is particularly important. Well, both of them are really, really important, clearly. But one of the reasons growing up is so, is so important is indeed that does determine how we actually interpret the experiences that we're having. And because they really were only discovered about 100 years ago, they're still relatively not well known, certainly not in the culture at large, for example, even though so much of what happens in the culture at large, the culture wars, for example, and we've talked about a couple of times now, are stemming from three of those major levels of growing up. And they're all at each other's throat and they have no conception that that's what they're doing. Um, and those growing up structure levels uh, were discovered by uh, an American psychologist named James Mark Baldwin. And if, if you ask so the expert who, experts who, who is America's greatest psychologist, it's usually one of two people. It's either William James or James Mark Baldwin. Um, and interestingly, these two guys were, uh, were friends and colleagues um, in, in Cambridge. And while Baldwin was pioneering the, the, the um, research into these structure stages of development, William James was looking at states of consciousness as it was applying to spirituality. And one of his famous books was called The Varieties of Religious Experience. So he was actually studying these states of waking up as, as, as they were occurring in first person conscious experiences or states. And his friend and colleague, James Mark Baldwin, was studying these structure stages that you can't see really by introspecting. And Baldwin was actually the first who ever gave a definition of a structure of consciousness. And so those are indeed more like these sort of um, third person grammar systems that are just these, these broad uh, objectively existing uh, frameworks that govern how we edit, parse, and interpret our experiences as they arise. And so each moment to moment, we're getting uh, an enormous number of stimuli from all of our senses and, and even our past thoughts and ideas. And before those come to our awareness, before they actually exist in our consciousness, they're worked and worked over by these interpretive grids. And then the results of that are presented to our awareness and then we, we just see those immediately as first-person experience. And we think, well, that's just the way things are. That, that's, it's given that way. It's not, oh, that's, I'm seeing this and valuing this and I want this because I've done this extensive editing of overall stimuli. And those do tend to create different types of worldviews, different values, different motivations at each level. Um, and all of them involve you know, specific types of action that we take to help bring forth a world. And all of those vary um, enormously. Um, in some ways, um, each of them involves um, what Thomas Kuhn meant by a paradigm. And 
Kuhn, paradigm didn't mean just like a big super theory that creates facts. Uh, that's how almost everybody interpreted paradigms. Um, Kuhn got so sick of that misinterpretation that he himself stopped using the term paradigm and switched to the term exemplar mm. uh, because the paradigm was an exemplary action, an injunction. It's so always, if you want to know this, you have to do this. And the do this was the paradigm, the exemplar. And so when Kuhn in his later writings would say, in effect, that different paradigms create different data out of the same stimuli, that's what he's talking about. And that's exactly what these structures do. Um, so it doesn't help to just point to like sensory motor primary qualities of the world. You know, here's this piece of mass, it weighs this much, it's this tall, it's this wide, it's this. That's all given by sensory motor intelligence, which is like the first major structure. Then everything else takes that and reworks it in enormous and adds its own and enacts its own phenomena. So that's one of the reasons that reductionism is such a bad idea. But you also do generate uh, wildly different worldviews. I mean, magical worldviews and mythic worldviews and rational worldviews and relativistic worldviews. These are really, really different. But each of them are equally real to the consciousness that's experiencing it. And not one of them has the slightest idea that that's what it's doing. Right. So uh, even if it has waking up experience, and that is a more direct sort of what is experience, they'll still interpret it through one of those structures. Um, so that's what, that's one of the important ingredients that we have in integral. And as, as I um, continue to move forward on these things, right at the point where I had um, began to recognize that there was a, a very real difference in, in this spectrum, there were in a sense sort of two different aspects, two different ways we could look at this and experience this spectrum. Um, and one of them was through these structures of growing up and one was through these states of waking up. But it was really clear to me that whether we were looking at systems of waking up around the world or models of growing up that had been proposed, they all had these stages, waves, levels of development. And so initially, <clears throat> because the Western models all were working with where people actually were in their everyday, day-to-day, moment-to-moment lives, and because they found that those developmental structures only went up about what I would say is about two thirds of the way of the spectrum because actual structure stages, there are third tier higher structure stages, but I, I said that's much less than 1% of the population. And most of the models, the highest stage that they would go to is something that I call turquoise, which is sort of the upper limit of what we call second tier. And every different model gets, has a slightly different metric because most of them are measuring different developmental lines, different multiple intelligences. Um, but on balance, um, the average percent of the population that most of these models give for turquoise is about 0.5% of the population. So it's not a lot of people. Um, so what I would tend to do 
and I certainly did it in a spectrum of cautious in the early works, is I would take all of the maps of waking up because most of those started to deal with, there are always one or two stages that are like introductory or you can count your breath or something like that. And then they all started getting into subtle and causal and curia, these, these transpersonal states. And so I would simply take those and, and those, all of those waking up maps had some very broad similarities, some, some very general family resemblances of these various stages. And they were around four or five of those and say fit with the four or five major states of consciousness. So I take those levels of meditative development and simply put them on top of all the stages of growing up. So by the time I got to a book called Integral Psychology, I was I had taken literally um, pretty much every major developmental model, East and West, meditative or conventional, put them all on the table, and then and then sort of drew this whole long spectrum that hooked them all together. So we had it from pre-personal into personal stages, and those were the, almost exclusively the Western developmental models that were actually studying structures. They knew they were there now. They were looking for them. This is just in the last hundred years. And then all of the third tier, all of the transpersonal um, is where all the meditative stages were. And so I had looked at that time at well over a hundred different models, East and West, that were looking at these levels of consciousness. And I actually have charts in the back of that book with a hundred developmental models, some of which are, are the higher waking up stages, and some of which are the lower pre-personal to personal stages. And you can actually see the difference fairly quickly because in the charts that are working mostly with growing up, they all stop at around second tier. Hmm. And then all of the waking up models start at third tier and are doing the transpersonal stuff. And you can see them about a third of those charts are actually state stages of waking up. And those are all similar in the top four high, very highest levels. And then all the others are mostly Western developmental psychology models of growing up. So, um, so it became um, increasingly important as we started to realize the main difference between these. And, and the single largest difference that you can find between structures and states is that states are indeed first-person, direct, immediate uh, awareness. And structures aren't. You can't look within and see them. And so that becomes really centrally important. And of course, states, um, there's a broad meaning of states, because uh, you can have what I call small states, like you're happy, you're sad, you're excited, you're depressed, you're you know, whatever. And those are little phenomenological moment-to-moment -moment states, and that's fine. And then there are big states, like waking, dreaming, deep sleep, hypnagogic. Um, in some cases, even psychedelic states have certain things in common. And then there are meditative states. So there's a broad category. When we just say states of consciousness generally, we mean these broad meditative states uh, of development. And I'm sure um, down the road, we'll, we'll talk about those uh, in more detail as well. Um, but, but for right now, what we're looking at is these major structure 
stages, these structure levels of consciousness up to around turquoise. Now I do, um, in some writings, give uh, uh, an outline of what I believe are some of these higher structures are. But again, they're so rare um, that you find them really in, in, well, fewer people reach those stages than reach turquoise. So tur if turquoise 0.5%, you can see how much there's of, uh, of these other. But for these basic levels um, themselves, um, what I had done, and I'd been doing this one way or another from the start, but what I particularly did um, by the time I got into interval psychology was it was really clear as I looked at all just the actual modern Western developmental models of growing up, that they all had some very broad similarities to their levels, um, but they all also had some major differences. And it turns out that human beings do indeed have not just sort of one single type of intelligence. It's usually called cognitive intelligence and measured with an IQ test. Um, but they really do have multiple intelligences. So they have cognitive intelligence and emotional intelligence and moral intelligence. And there's a aesthetic development and ego development. Uh, there's a needs, motivational development. There's a values development. And as each of these pioneering um, developmentalists were studying human growth and development, most of them focused on just one or two of those main lines. And so, of course, even though we found out that all those different lines go through the same basic levels, those levels will show up with you know, fairly, fairly significant differences in each of the lines that it's showing up in. So the, from the start, whenever I would discuss these levels uh, of, of development, um, I was doing a kind of meta-analysis across all of these developmental models. Whereas the, the models themselves were focusing usually on just a particular type of uh, multiple intelligence. Um, and so it's always been this very broad, generic presentations that I've been giving, even though I do have things like uh, charts with uh, all the multiple intelligences and, and the way the stages show up in those and so on. And, and we'll be talking about um, multiple lines uh, soon. Yeah. So um, and one of the questions that, that we'll get to, um, I think, after we, after we do some of the movie clips is about, well, of the, of the levels that I generally present. Um, are there uh, other models that have more levels or have right of sort of major level like amber to orange? Is there any model that has something between that? Um, and the answer is, and again, we'll get back uh, to that shortly, but the answer is yes, a few, about half of the models, and actually um, I go into this in Religion of Tomorrow, because I explicitly include that level between amber and orange. Um, and one of the generic names we use for amber is mythic, and one of the generic names for orange is rational. And, uh, and I actually call that level between them the mythic rational or mm. rational mythic. Um, just like there's a magic mythic, and then mythic, and then mythic rational, and then rational, and so on. Um, both Levenger 
and Colbert, with some others, at the beginning of, of their work, when they presented their, some of the first forms of their models, both of them did not have a stage between amber and orange. So Colbert just went from stage, what he calls stage four to stage five, and Lovinger went from what she called conformist to conscientious. And then as they got more data and more research, they both found that there, there was a, a level between those. And Colbert simply called it four slash five. And Lovinger at the start, because it was between the conscientious and the, uh, the conformist and the conscientious, she actually called it the conscientious conformist. Um, she later changed that to self-aware. And I pointed out that about half the models had that level and about half of them don't. So Claire Graves doesn't have that in-between level. Um, and I generally tend not to include that level, although the technical models that I give have all, well, even since analytical psychology, if you look in the actual, with all those charts, the scale I'm using has about 16 levels. Right. And that does include a, a, a mythic rational. Um, but generally, uh, people that, that have that mythic rational orientation uh, tend to be included in just the broad rational group mm -hmm. itself, simply because they are ha accessing a type of rationality in, in at least half of what they're, what they're doing. And that really does tend to distinguish them uh, from those deeply ethnocentric amber um, mythic, uh, particularly mythic literal um, approaches. So, so we'll come back um, um, to that. But generically, when we talk about these levels now, and we are talking about them just as levels, by definition, any level is a level of something real. So whenever you have a level, it's a level of some line. You're talking about something if you actually discuss it in any way. And so even if you don't specify which line you're talking about, you'll look, use certain terms and certain languages. I mean, when Gene Gepser talks about his levels, for example, um, first and foremost, of course, the cognitive, the actual world views. And then he'll also sometimes get into kinds of motivational kind of orientation, a little bit of sort of um, value kind of orientation. But he's really describing worldviews um, and, and, and the whole cognitive kind of unfolding. And those are, are, um, are some of the centrally most important. And one of the reasons is that um, when you look at any of the levels in the actual interior consciousness of a human being, um, if you look at the um, upper left quadrant, then what we find is that Cognitive development is necessary, but not sufficient for almost all the other lines. And the reason is fairly straightforward. It's even if you're giving somebody a test of their moral development and you say, okay, uh, a person's doing this and then they're faced with this dilemma and they can do this thing, they can do that thing. What do you think they should do? Well, the person has to introspect their own phenomena and look at them and be aware of what they are. So they're using their cognitive capacity to look at their moral objects. And so you can find people, if you measure their cognitive development and their moral development, you can find some people that are really high cognitive development, really low moral development. I always use Nazi doctors kind of thing. Right. But you never find the reverse, ever. You'll never find somebody high moral and low cognitive. 
it just won't work. So it's cognitive, and then in the, there are several models that kind of focus on cognitive, including ones like Kurt Fisher and um, even even Robert Keegan. But those cognitive stages will often run a stage or two or three ahead of your more self-oriented stages, the actual center of gravity. Uh, your cognitive is your talk, but your self-related stages is your walk, what, what you actually do in the world. And then those are separate from what we just call things like talents or gifts, like musical uh, intelligence or mathematical intelligence. Some people have a great deal of musical intelligence and can't even add. And right. other people are mathematical geniuses and, and couldn't hit a note on a pan if they had to. Um, so those are, tend to be pretty relatively independent. Um, but what we're looking at um, overall is this just meta-analysis of what the levels show up like whatever line they appear in. And so certain broad terms tend to um, be used for that, those abstract levels. Uh, and, and most of them are, are taken from you know, one line or another line or another, but they do tend to sort of have um, a broad family resemblance across uh, almost any, any of the lines. Um, and so that's what we're gonna be um, looking at here. And what we are checking, of course, is as human beings first um, emerged and, and came into being, one of the things we found um, as we've gotten just smarter and smarter and brighter and brighter over the years, um, is that pretty much everything in the universe, unlike the way it's portrayed in most of the great mythic systems, which is that there's some sort of creative being, it created the universe and then it threw people in, and then whatever was created at that beginning time, that's still essentially the way the world is, and that essentially doesn't change very much. Um, and we hadn't really gotten to a point where in cognitive development, we had really strong, fairly widespread, uh, rational or form operational cognition. And what that rationality tended to do was to actually look at time periods, real time periods, and start stacking them up. And when you did that, it became really, really clear that things, however they started, they emerged in some sort of evolutionary unfolding, and then they started to develop. And so this go all the way back to the Big Bang, where there was just sort of um, essentially nothing, and then pow, the universe blew into existence. Um, but the only thing that blew into existence to begin with was just dead and sentient matter. So if you even use like the Christian version of the great chain of being, matter to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit, the only thing that was actually blew into existence at the start was just matter. So they weren't even living bodies, just matter. But billions of years into that process of matter just becoming more complexified and more complexified and more complexified from quarks into atoms into molecules. At one point, all of these um, several dozen really long molecules were just hanging out at you know, the local bar, <laughs> a physical boundary dropped around them and we got the first living cells. And then those continued, those ended up dividing, differentiating, making multicellular organisms. Those tended to go through a whole tree of life. 
And then at, at, at the most, some of the most recent points that we're aware of, human beings emerged. And when a human first emerged in, in, in its own body, it had essentially um, some degree of virtually every major holon that had emerged so far. So in a human body, there were quarks and there were atoms and there were molecules and there were complex molecules and those were drawn together. And then there was even, a, um, there was a plant photosynthetic biochemistry, the biochemistry of life was present. There's a reptilian brainstem, a mammalian limbic system, a primate cortex. So we continue to transcend and include, transcend and include, transcend and include all the way up. And when human beings first emerged, some of the um, earliest forms of human-ish kinds of things, uh, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, maybe about a million years old. And we used to think that the modern form of humans, um, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, the oldest skeletons we had of that was around 200,000 years ago. Now we found some go back around 300,000 years. So human beings emerged and when they did, they were essentially talented apes, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we continued evolution. And although this involved neurophysiological changes in the brain, one of the places you could most easily see it was not in those upper right quadrants, but in the upper left, the actual interiors that we went through. And so we really did, in just very broad terms, went from an archaic stage, which was this great transition from the great apes into specifically human beings. And then there, as the mind continued to develop, we developed magical views, and we'll talk about those. And then those went into a mythic stage. So if you sort of take the picture right there at mythic, then what you would have is a human being would be born, because what you find is that everybody's still born at square one, that ontogeny re really does uh, recapitulate phylogeny. And so they'd start at archaic when they were first born, then they had to, if they continued growing, they would be at magic. And then probably sometime around adolescence, if they continued growing, they develop into mythic. And that's sort of, that's where we do it. And at most, most of those stages, they could also have waking up experiences. And some of them, again, going quite far back, including the earliest magic, tribal, shamanic people, uh, certainly had very subtle states of consciousness. Um, and then, as we moved into the modern era, then we got the emergence of formal operational cognition, orange rationality. And again, these are very broad sweeps. Um, but you can, you can see this orange rationality um, emerge because it was also a, accompanied by, in the moral line of development, it was the development of post-conventional stages of morality. And so those really were universal. So prior to that time, um, in most of the Middle Ages, for example, um, you had rights or you, you were sort of, things are going to go good for you if you were a Christian. And if you weren't a Christian, I, I'm sorry, but you're going to burn in hell forever. And I, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, also, by the way, if you're a slave, no problem. It's, um, these are ethnocentric stages. They don't have any problem with that. So even in, in something like the New Testament, 
you can have St. Paul talking about an ultimate unity consciousness and that that's the whole point. And New Testament was written in Greek and the word for it was metamorphosis. And the New Testament was obsessed with metamorphosis. I mean, that's what Christ actually brought was his ultimate unity consciousness. And so, so St. Paul will actually define what a Christian is supposed to do by saying, let this consciousness be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. And that's a fairly good description of ultimate unity consciousness. And yet in the very next breath, he'll look at slaves and go, quote, obey your master and love Jesus Christ. It's like, really? That's the best we can do. Well, by the time we get to the emergence of this modern post-conventional morality, meaning universal rights, not just your right as a Christian, or not just your right as a chosen people, as, as, as Jewish, or not just your right as a Hindu, Hindu, whatever system that might be. But the Western Enlightenment philosophers started looking at this, wait a minute, you, you can't say that because you're Christian you have rights and you're not Christian, you don't have rights. If you're simply born a human being, there are universal and alienable rights that you have. And nobody can take those away from you. Those are, there they are. And so that was a real shift. Um, and so starting at that point, if you continued your own individual growth and development, at some point, now, usually during adolescence, reason had a, a chance of emerging. And you would often look at your mythic religion that you had believed, and you go, ah, I, I don't really think Moses parted the Red Sea. I really, you know, that's not right. Um, at the same time, you could get into the much rarer, smaller um, sects of uh, particular religion. They were doing waking up practices. And then that you could be rational and do that. And many were. But at large, you're not aware of waking up because it's just, it's something you actually have to do and they have to be um, actual practices that you can do and you have to know about them. And, and these just aren't really well understood. Uh, all of that continues until in the 1960s when we actually get a new stage of development, which was this green relativistic stage. And we'll talk about those when we get to it because that was a staggeringly huge change. It was so different from the previous amber and orange. Um, they started picking fights with them, and the result is the culture wars. And, and by the way, they didn't like green any more than green liked them. So, you know, it was just a, a melee free-for-all with everybody at everybody's throats. Um, and then last thing I'll say before we, we start looking at some of these clips is what started to happen, I mean, it was developmental researchers that first noticed the strange emergence of green because there was about three, 1959, about 3% of the population was green. And by 1972, uh, Jacques Derrida was the most frequently quoted academic in America and the percent of the population of green was pushing 15%. And so developmentalists had noticed that by that time. But what they were also starting to notice was the emergence of a particular kind of response uh, the likes of which literally they had never, ever, ever seen before. And when these initial responses started coming in, they thought it was bad data. They thought it was just bad research. It wasn't right. And the reason is that all of the previous stages 
And these are all, um, well, maths are called deficiency and the new ones they call B needs. For Claire Grades, it was first tier and then these new things were second tier. But all the early first tier, about five or six major stages, every single one of those thought that its truth and values are the only real truth and values that there were. And what started to happen with the second tier stages is that there, there was really strong intuitive understanding that all of those previous stages were important. They all had real significance. If for no other reason that they were actually stages on the way to your own viewpoint. They're actually sort of like rungs in a ladder, although they're not that discreet. Um, but if you pull those out, you pull the ladder out from under you, it's suicidal. And so developmentalists started calling those stages terms like uh, well, the most common one is integral, or Jane Lovinger called them integrated. And that's what they were. That's what they were doing. And so that's one of the things we'll be talking about as, as we get to that. Um, and uh, that does tend to be um, one of the most important um, items that a culture should be paying attention to right now. Because otherwise, all of the previous stages and value systems um, will engage in some form of cultural warfare because they just cannot accept the truth or reality of, of any of the others. And so it's just gonna, it's inherently a food fight until we get over that. Uh, and that polarization seems to be getting worse and worse. And, and the really bad thing is there doesn't seem to be any counter polarizing force out there there's nothing obvious on the horizon that's happening. There's no movement to really try. There are a lot of individuals that are becoming aware of this problem. And in a sense, the whole sort of intellectual dark web is, oh, they're that's what they're concerned with. Um, but as we start to get people at second tier, then you reach a certain tipping point where the values of the very leading edge tend to permeate the culture. And people don't exactly fully accept them, I mean, if they did, they'd actually be at that stage. Um, but they become open to them. It becomes a force that's out there. And that would be a non-polarizing force that would actually be in the culture and would help us repair and heal the terrible um, tears and rents and, and um, polarizations occurring uh, in our social fabric. Um, so that's an issue that, that, um, that we want to keep in mind as well. So beautiful. Wow. What a, what a gorgeous summary, Ken. Um, and I really, really love how you are tracking this um, in terms of, you know, identifying and integrating both the path of growing up through these structure stages, as well as the path of waking up through these state stages, because simply acknowledging and including both, I think what it does is it immediately helps us resolve this classic common tension or even conflict that often exists between growing up and waking up. In other words, it's often, you know, there's this perceived hostility between spiritual awakening and the ego itself. And we are going to get into lines of development in a future episode. We've got a, a set of really great questions about that. But one of the lines of development that we have is, for example, it's called ego development, which means that as we grow up, our ego, the, the entire point literally is for our egos to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, ego is not a bad word. It is our, our primary interface that we have with the rest of the cosmos. It's our vehicle to express whatever goodness 
beauty and truth that reveal themselves to us through our path of waking up. What I often say, Ken, is that, you know, again, the point of growing up is to actually get a bigger, bigger, more beautiful ego. The, the, the point of both waking up and cleaning up is to make that big, beautiful ego more transparent to itself and maybe a little bit less dense and a little bit less sticky so we don't get caught up in it so much. But it's not, spiritual awakening is not in itself hostile to ego development. In fact, they, they supplement each other. They complement each other right. in a lot of important ways. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that awesome blistering yep. summary. We hope you enjoyed this excerpt from the March episode of The Ken Show titled Growing Up, A Guided Tour. And we invite you to become a supporting member of IntegralLife.com to hear the rest of this fascinating three-and-a-half-hour episode. And now, a word from our sponsors. Us! Let's talk for a moment about power. From the Me Too movement, to Black Lives Matter, to wealth inequality, political corruption, climate change, and violence, power is the hidden dynamic infusing every headline today. It's hard to think of any other time in recent history as stressful as this one. We are surrounded on all sides by anxiety, uncertainty, political polarization, fear-mongering, and any number of new pressures that, together, have made the last few years some of the most challenging years in memory. And all of it tends to have the same corrosive effect on us. It makes us feel powerless. And let's face it, neither our current postmodern liberal approaches to power nor our traditional conservative approaches are helping very much at all. In fact, they only seem to be making the problem worse, creating entire new generations that are less resilient, less empowered, and less equipped to meet the extraordinary power challenges of our time. If we are genuinely entering a momentous leap into the transformation age, as some integral thinkers believe that we are, then these headlines will continue, and even more destabilization awaits us in our future. But it's our belief that we can equip ourselves to thrive amidst the volatility, uncertainty, and ambiguity by empowering ourselves at every level. When we are not aligned with our own inner power, it can make us feel small, vulnerable, subject to the forces of human avarice that rob us of our dignity and our opportunity to truly thrive. When we allow ourselves to become disconnected from our power, we search for something or someone outside of us to blame for the inequities of our lives. Those people are responsible. Those systems are responsible. Those ideas are responsible. But when we learn how to cultivate and align ourselves with our innermost power, and when we bring this increased voltage into our life, our relationships, and our work in the world, amazing things start to happen. Because power, after all, is simply the ability to convert energy into matter. An integral approach to power, an updated philosophy of power, a more comprehensive practice of power, and a more full spectrum of inner power is the only way forward for all of us in the 21st century. Full spectrum power is a new teaching by Ken Wilber that will help you bring more voltage to your life and your love and your ability to make a meaningful impact in the world around you. In this training, you will discover a limitless source of strength, resiliency, and resolve that's already waiting inside of you. You will learn how to align your innermost power with your deepest passion and purpose. You will learn to recognize and overcome any hidden addictions that you may have to things like money, sex, greed, and power, 
while also identifying and transcending any unseen allergies or avoidances that you may have around power. And finally, this training program will help you cultivate your ability to navigate and thrive in a world that's teeming with power inequalities and abuses. If you'd like to learn more about Ken's new full spectrum power teaching, we invite you to come check it out at integrallife.com slash full spectrum power. That's integrallife.com slash full dash spectrum dash power.